Hi there. Thank you for listening to Spotless, breaking the boundaries of television. The world of TV and advertising is evolving quickly. The largest content creators, distributors, and brands are all vying for new ways to engage the next generation of viewers. Presented by two media powerhouses, Triple Lift and Advertising Week, Spotless brings you in-depth conversations with the leaders who are driving this evolution. Consumer behaviors of the next two years will decide the winners and losers of the next two decades. Now here's our host, Michael Shields, GM of Advanced Advertising at Triple Lift. Bonin Bao is one of the foremost awarded marketing executives in the world and currently serves as the Chief Growth Officer at Triller. Bonin, you're truly one of the most impressive marketing backgrounds in the industry. Um, and I want to uh, uh, touch on a bunch of different topics uh, about your background and about your current role at Triller. Um, but for today's conversation, I want to center it around a few key ideas. Um, first, digging into your past with marquee brands like Oreo and Pepsi and Sour Patch Kids, really what it takes to sustain growth for a marquee brand. And then talk a little bit about how brands can break through in today's media landscape. Um, and then, of course, move on to Triller. Um, so let's start with marquee brands, Bonin. You've done work to transform several multi-billion dollar brands. Um, at the on onset of those conversations and when developing brand briefs, tell us a little bit about your process. Like maybe when you first started working with Pepsi, first started working with Mondelez, what was your process for thinking about how to evolve those brands? Um, I think it all starts with a look into... Um, really where is the marketplace and the consumer at today? So what consumers is the brand targeting? What consumers could the brand target? Where could the brand stretch? But, you know, a lot of these roles have also been organization, like broader global uh, kind of roles from the center. I've always had center-led roles. So that is really me asking myself, where can the organization stretch? And where's their opportunity for the organization to really uh, move in in a bigger way. So for example, Pepsi, that was really, really, if you think about it, the beginning days of kind of social and what's now called digital transformation. And for me, that was really three things. One is I wanted to be seen as the most progressive digital marketer in the marketplace so that we could accomplish a couple of things. One, we could push the organization from within to change and a lot of ways that i usually do that is using external you know uh, if you say enough about yourself that you digest it and you begin to believe it and as an organization you can actually move an organization with uh what the outside world says about you um the and so a lot of the stuff that we did if you look at that was um and I, so i want to accomplish really two things with that one i wanted to move the organization's thinking forward fast and furiously. And I also wanted the outside world to make us the first port of port of coal. So I wanted anybody who had transformational ideas to come to us first, right? To know that our doors were open, that we were going to do the deals, that we were going to do those deals and tell the world that we're doing those deals. We're going to add value. We're going to be the ones that are going to think different and innovatively across the entire uh, portfolio. And so if you look, a lot of our beginnings started off, uh, you know, with, sponsoring and participating in huge 
events where industry transformation was being discussed. So South by Southwest, many won't know, but I was the first non-endemic sponsor of South by Southwest. I had gone there, I think in 2001, and I had won a People's Choice Award. And I saw this kind of like mecca of, you know, the future of the digital world. And I tried to, on the agency side, get people to sponsor for many, many years, and I couldn't get it done. And so when I became a client, that was one of the first things that I actually said I'm gonna do. And so we really put a stake there. Um, before that, it was like Microsoft, LinkedIn. So we were really the first consumer brand coming in uh, and working not, and this, I, would, I should say first consumer brand for interactive. We sponsored the whole event. Um, and I don't know if I should say this, but my entire sponsorship across all three of those events for six brands was $150,000. So that just wow. gives you a sense of, of how early we were. And they had never done a, a deal like this. And we turned that town blue and we continued that march for, you know, I was the largest for 10 years, but at Pepsi, we continued that march for five years, really pushing the envelope and forcing us to show the world what was possible when a consumer brand thought like a digital brand. The next piece was also the internal culture. So I really knew that I had to grab hold of that internal culture. So we launched Pep10 which was the first kind of uh, corporate brand incubator. I mean, now everybody has one, but that was really um, uh, really uh, the first startup meet brand kind of thing, uh, which became a, a, the model for a lot of others moving forward uh, to really change the marketer's mindset and force them. We did that, I think, in five countries around the world. It really changed the mindset of the marketers to partner with kind of early stage startups. And then the other big structural piece there was we wanted to own social conversation. So we launched a thing called Gatorade Mission Control, which was the first of those rooms, war rooms that had monitors that showed conversation, consumer conversation in real time and had people engaging, uh, sitting in the room, engaging on behalf of the brand. And we really drove kind of the future of, of uh, kind of brand engagement at scale across all of those all the social platforms. Of course, Twitter was very big and early. And we turned that into an insights room, which really drove the insights that transformed many of what, what we did at Gatorade, but also became kind of a model that we would use, not necessarily as rooms, but for doing that across the globe. And then you saw uh, a lot of these kind of pop up after, uh, after we had kind of set the stage. And so for me, it was really choosing what I want to do. When I went over to Mondelez, it was really about the future of mobile. And so I wanted to be the number one mobile marketer in the world. Uh, I also wanted to reinvent how traditional media was bought. So we reduced from you know, first we launched Mobile Futures, which was uh, again, kind of a startup meets brand, but the future of mobility. Uh, we shifted a lot of spending into mobile. We 10% of total spending into mobile. We um, uh, then when it came down to the traditional media, we did fewer, bigger, better. And so we reduced the number of people that we were buying across the overall ecosystem. We shifted a lot of money into digital, about 32%. And we grew the business about 2 billion top line just from the shift of media. We added 200 million, I think, to the bottom line. And then the other piece we did, um, uh, and also Mobile Futures was part of kind of the culture change again. And then the other piece there was talent. So there were these three big, so I guess my process is I step back and I think about, okay, what does the brand need to accomplish what does the organization need to accomplish much broader and what are, so I wanted to, you know, really for, focus on the new channel where the new consumer was mobility. Uh, we wanted to um, reinvent traditional media buying and how we did that. And then we wanted to also invest in talent. And so we took on talent as a huge, which was what's the change and what's the future of talent. 
when I left Mondelez, you know, I went into uh, investing in startups, and then I came across a company called um, Sundown, the largest natural beauty business in the world. And we took that from 200 to 312 months as chief growth officer and sold it to Unilever for a little under a billion. But one of the big pieces I did there was, again, looking at the organization, what I need to accomplish. So you had this little engine that could, but they were still not as progressive forward marketers. And I knew in order for us to grow that business, we had to become the best beauty econ business that we could. And so we did rotational marketing. And what I did was I took the entire marketing department from Long Island. We moved into the three key areas that I knew that we needed to tackle. So one was we need to learn digital marketing at scale. So we moved into VaynerMedia and actually moved the entire business there for six months. Then we needed to learn direct to consumer. So we moved into uh, Loeb Enterprises who, you know, kind of built DTC. And then we needed to learn content. And so we moved into Refinery29. And so I guess my, my thinking is usually like big frameworks that are gonna move the organization forward. And then the brand concepts and those things come uh, as you kind of plug that in. Um, that's fascinating, Bon, and thank you for that. I wanna kind of dig into um, how you thought about those frameworks and then what you're thinking about now. So we go back to Pepsi. You mentioned being at the forefront of really utilizing social media as a tool, creating an incubator uh, for Pepsi. Then we go forward to Mondelez and you're thinking about mobile. You're reconfiguring the media mix as as, uh, a media consumption transforms. You're thinking about talent in new ways. Um, What are the, the things you're thinking about now um, that are essentially uh, uh, things that can enable brands to break through? Um, well, I think first and foremost, the biggest thing is really thinking about, you know, why does, what's the raison d'etre, the reason for a platform like Triller to exist? And so part of it is culture, but also I think it's ethos of wanting to make sure that creators have the ability to monetize their creativity. When you think about platforms, many of the platforms have been built by creators, but the ability for them to monetize themselves within those platforms is probably suboptimal. And so if you can create an ecosystem where everybody wins, then all of a sudden you can create a platform that has sticking power both to the consumer because the creators are gonna be there and to the creators. And so I think that that for me is probably the most important aspect of what we wake up and do every single day is how do we figure out how to continue to provide value for the creators that are on the platform? And so I think that that to me is first and foremost. Uh, The second piece of that is really how do we, um, how do we continue to put things into the world? So look, most platforms are sitting back and sucking in brand dollars to advertise and not necessarily creating big cultural moments. So if you look at what we're doing with Tyson, we want to create big cultural assets that live in the world and progress the world forward with our voice. Like, what is that world going to look like? And then how do we stand for some things like uh, what's our data stance? What are the things that we stand for that we know brand marketers care the most about today? And how do we stand alongside a number of those uh, big really, I think, big issues uh, that will need to be addressed as we continue to build a more fair media ecosystem. And so, again, those are the big things. Uh, And then, of course, you got to get the little things right, which is how do we make sure that we have uh, the right teams to service? How do we make sure that we have the right creative thinking? How do we put in place uh, creative teams that help you create and think differently about the platform? Uh, So really, but I think those are the three big pillars. Um. You're chief growth officer in your new role, Bonin. Um, talk to us a little bit about how you define growth. Mm, I mean, look, I've taken on that title because I really believe that that's going to be the title that um, 
is going to define companies moving forward, which is how do you truly make them grow both on a revenue standpoint and then also from a how do I get more users on the platform kind of perspective. And that's really what I've been focused on is really the growth side and the marketing side. And then um, Justine is chief brand officer pushing that agenda. Um, I think growth now is, uh, is really growing, not just from a, a top line perspective, but again, growing into new areas and avenues where you can participate as a, a different type of platform. Uh, and for me, when I think about growth, it's, it's really all those different aspects of how do you accelerate the growth of a business? How do you take a business from zero to 60 as fast as humanly possible? And what are uh, the big swim lanes that you're going to sit inside of to be able to do that? So during the, the it's six, seven, eight months now, uh, Bonin, that you've been with Triller? Yep. That, and, you know, and during that time, the platform has really taken off. So talk about growth. Um, the company's been around for, for five years, but in the last six months has, has grown substantially. Yeah, I mean, it's taken off, but I mean, we've done a lot of fundamental pieces too, which are, you know, creating the right tools for creators. I mean, our video creation app is the best in the world. When you look at the stuff that we're putting together, not just the ease of use of, but the ability to create professionally generated videos that look like, you know, uh, a video that was professionally generated uh, because the tool is that good. Uh, and then the other piece, I think, is making a home for brands where they can do things that they can't do on other platforms. So, you know, we really went big uh, with Pepsi, for example, in the Rock the Vote campaign. We really went big um, with Levi. We really went big with, um, you know, some of the work we're doing with McDonald's. So creating a space for big brands. And if you look at those were really the first advertisers, right? The Boost Mobile, really like big brands with big programs and not believing that because we're, um, you know, maybe new to the advertising world that we have to start off with the test and learns in the 50s and the hundreds. Because in order for us to flex our muscle and show just how big we really are in culture, which we are, you know, bringing together Demi Lovato, Chance the Rapper, Chloe and Haley, Ava Max, you know, Brett Young, St. John, all under one ticket in a very short period of time. And with the highest level production that we've seen of any virtual events or the thing that we did Triller Fest, which had 109 artists that performed across three days, 34 hours of content uh, across three streaming platforms or Tyson. So really, um, really thinking about how do we push out in much bigger ways and provide our brand partners bigger moments to kind of build upon. I want to talk about music a little bit. Triller is a, a brand with, you just mentioned a whole bunch of artists, right? I think that uh, uh, Triller has licensed 97% or something like that of available music, right? Obviously, a lot of artists are actually even behind the platform uh, from an investment perspective. Could you talk about like music as an, as an ethos for the platform and how important it is to marketing customers? Well, I mean, we really, music is such a huge form of culture. So, you know, culture is a shorthand of growth. Like at the end of the day, cultural relevance is what takes brands from, you know, zero to hero. And, um, and so music is, is it such a huge part of that, that that became really our ethos. It was started as a music app. And so, you know, building upon those credentials and wanting to bring music to the world, um, and to users in different ways is kind of, you know, just a huge part of what we do every single day. 
uh, huge artist relations teams, huge label relations teams, you know, really focusing on getting that right, being a place where new artists want to break, where that's where they want to be. Um, that's been just a huge part of our overall success. And as we think about moving forward, it's now expanding into all those other aspects of culture, gaming, fashion, you know, uh, influence, uh, you know, you name it. How do you think about um, that influence when it comes to kind of like, I guess the traditional model for talent versus the, the new and emerging model around influencers, right? Both of those kinds of talents are on the platform and at scale. Um, and how do you think about like kind of mediating the dialogue between the two and what does the future of talent look like? I think that, you know, for us, it's it's really supporting the influencers and helping our influencers, which are the biggest in the world, um, continue to do what they love and continue to allow brands to work with them beyond just the like, hey, here's a post. And really, how do we help to create new products together? How do we create new creative approaches together? How do we bring them into the creative process because they themselves are the best creators in the world or they wouldn't build audiences like they have. And so there's so much for brands to learn. The hardest thing though, is for brands to step away from the model that they're so used to, which is, you know, the assumption that they can understand the platform. I will say one thing, you know, um, I was, I was Gary's very first corporate client, Gary V when he only had 12 people working at VaynerMedia. And I think to date, I am probably his largest in total cash brought to him. If you can, uh, if, if I can take credit for the lasting relationship he has with many of the companies that I was, that I brought into his doors. Um, but the one thing that Gary said to me, which I thought was really interesting, um, you know, look, a lot of agencies can come in and tell you how to use Twitter, right. Or tell you how to use Instagram. And you ask the people who are sharing the strategy with you, how many Instagram followers do you have? How many Twitter followers do you have? You know, a lot of times it's donut. Gary, it's a million, six million, you know what I mean? And yeah. so at the end of the day, working with the practitioners of the platform, you know, what also was unique is when Gary started building his business, we started working together and try, I always tried to be the new platform exploration guinea pig, right? Whether it was what we did with Trident and Vine, uh, whether it was the stuff that we did, when, when we wanted to build out a Pinterest strategy, we went out and we hired, he hired the biggest pinner from like North Carolina. And, you know, that became <coughs> the team that worked on our business. So when you think about, like, when you really think about what the, the future of this is, is, is bringing the people who understand how to connect with these audiences who do this for a living under the tent and having them help you create the program and having them help you create the product. Those are what's going to win at the end of the day here. And those can win at scale in a big way. And when you look at a lot of the work that we're doing now, that's what we're doing. We're creating new creative campaigns just with creators, but the strategic layer of the campaign, not just the, you know, not just the icing on the top, which is, hey, take this already crafted brief and, you know, just create a video for me that hits these points. Like that is not really, you know, how you're going to win this game. With things like the Rock the Vote concert, ultimately, one of the things that you're helping brands do as well on the platform is really navigate around social issues. Um, can you tell me a little bit about how like the influencers of today really can help inform brands in how they approach really relevant 
long overdue conversations around like social injustice, a lot of what the nation's been talking about over the last six months? We're unique in the sense that we truly are a diverse platform. 50% when you look at our US are people of color, uh, specifically black and Hispanic, Hispanic X. Um, and I think that that brings a unique perspective to the platform because you have not just, you, you, you get the diversity of views. And that's where I think is the most important thing. I look at it like the diversity of thought is what's important, right? So <clears throat> we tend to try to look at like, you know, I, I'll give an example. When I was at a certain organization, we took the top 25, we went on a retreat and you had to answer questions in terms of, uh, you know, your leadership style and they would give you a color. And I think red was executional, blue was operational, yellow was creative, and I think white was compassionate. And as you can imagine, there were all blues and reds. I was the only yellow, right? <laughs> and there was no, 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 nobody was compassionate, nothing but the killers in the boardroom. But, um, and it made me realize that, look, you know, um, even if you're black, Puerto Rican or Haitian, as long as you all went to the same school and you all, you know, graduated and worked at the same type of organizations, you're all going to think exactly the same. And so what we need is diversity of thought. And what we bring as a platform to the table is really just such a diversity of thought of how and how people are mixing and creating. So what it allows us is to help brands with a perspective on how do you deal with social issues on either side of the fence, right? It's either side of the, all, all aspects of that social issue. We have voices that represent all those aspects. And how do you do that in a way that continues to drive um, dialogue around those things that are important and allows brands to be a part of that dialogue in a very constructive way. And how do you not censor voices and how do you make sure that, you know, you provide a platform? We, during Black Lives Matter, we were the one of the largest platforms for Black Lives Matter content, if not the largest platform. And so in terms of the diversity of content, the songs that broke on our platform during that time period. So you know, I think what we bring to the table, not to mention who we are as an organization, I think what we bring to the table is the ability to help brands navigate into social issues with real meaning um, and with the ability to actually activate change. And again, when you look at what we did with Unmute Your Voice, that was not about taking a side. That was about talking about how do we make sure that we all go out and vote and we participate in the political process? And we were very, very focused on making sure that that was what we focused on, that this was really about every single American remembering that they're Americans and that they unmute their voice. And I thought the cultural uniqueness of the platform, which is, look, probably the most used word of the last nine months was you're on mute. And here is a platform that's taking the cultural essence of what we were experiencing and also turn it into a bigger call for you know us to all unmute ourselves but in a very social way and i thought that 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 was unique and and i think well delivered it's so important and we've made a commitment on this podcast bonin to really try to keep the dialogue fresh around things like the black lives matter movement um if we kind of take a step and look at the industry now bonin um beyond the kind of like consumers on the triller platform are there things happening in the industry that you'd like to call attention to, like amplify certain uh, um, efforts on behalf of our colleagues or institutions that you'd like to kind of call out uh, um, and bring attention to that could serve as a, a point of inspiration to our audience? It's hard to single out 
individual, because there's so many people trying to do the best work that they can to support. The one thing I will say is that us as an advertising community, we forget how important we really are. Like at the end of the day, brands have a place in culture. They help shape thought. Like we forget that. Think about this. At one point in time, Levi's represented freedom. Just the notion of Levi's represented freedom for some people. You know, Pepsi represented the choice of a new generation. The fact that you could make different decisions than the generation before you. I mean, we forget that, you know, um, Mark Echo told me once, he said, you know, when you know you have something that means something to culture, a brand that means something to culture, it's when somebody will tattoo it on their arm. And I was like, it's deep. I started looking for brands that were tattooed on people's arms. You'll be, and I'm very lucky to have worked at some of those. I know we used to send Mountain Dew swag to people who were getting married in a full Mountain Dew wedding. I mean, we forget how much these brands stand alongside everything else and have a point of view in the world. And we saw that in Black Lives Matter. We saw that before Black Lives Matter. We've seen that time and time again, those that stand up, stand out. And so you know, but we forget that we actually have that. And what I'm very proud of with what happened during this time period was that so much of the industry stood up and tried to help drive a message of change. And um, and I think that's, you know, that's the beauty of our industry as a whole is that not only do we have brands that people love, but we have the eyeballs of the world. You know, we control what's shown to many of the eyeballs in this world. And so, you know, we have a, almost a, a moral obligation to at least provide voice for the voiceless and, you know, speech for the speechless. And so I think that that's, that's what I thought. I thought the way that the community bound together and you could see kind of the outpouring in every piece of communication that you saw, I thought now I think from an organization standpoint, it needs to go beyond that, right? So we can highlight frontline workers, but now we have to ask ourselves, what did we change for them, right? Did we change healthcare plans? Did we create living wages? Did we, you know, so it's one thing to highlight, which we did. It's another thing to actually, as organizations now have true systemic change that moves the world forward more than just talks about how to move the world forward, right? Or shows how to move the world forward. And that's the thing is, so how many African-Americans do we have on boards? What are we doing about making sure that senior leadership makes it into the ranks of these organizations beyond just middle management? Um, we've seen if you are any of these Zoom calls, these global town halls, if everybody really turned on their camera, you would see a world that you probably don't believe is what the ideal should be. So we have to take that. How do we make sure that as organizations, we are investing in the communities of the people who purchase our product, not just where we operate? How do we make sure that we look at our partners? Our partners are a reflection of who we are. How do we make sure that they hold up the same ideals that we care about? And then the last piece is whether we like it or not, and we can say what we want, we have to track these efforts, right? And so when we wanted to have companies go green, guess what? We had sustainability reports. I mean, it's, it's, it's just as simple as that. We know if it's not measured, it's not accomplished, right? And so that's, that's the, the, the next wave that we have to, uh, you know, as leaders in these organizations have to take the next step, which is, okay, now we have to systemically change the organization to actually change, you know, how we operate as societies. Can you walk us through how you're thinking about now? Obviously, you've built these kinds of organizations before as a leader at several different companies. Now, as the chief growth officer, how are you thinking about, like, what are the principles of team building that you're thinking about as you build your organization? You got to surround yourself with, you have to surround, you have to create teams that just ooze difference, right? (laughs) In some respects. And so I think, you know, you have to, have just 
different thought process in place from different types of all different walks of life. You know, I think the other thing to remember, which is one of the things that I spent a lot of time struggling with in previous organizations were is the more you rise the ranks, what happens many times is you believe that your view of the world is how the world is, right? And you spend more time in boardrooms than you do in the streets, you know? And I think um, I always tried to say, you know, people would tell me if you're not in these four walls, you're not working. And I used to think if I'm in these four walls, I'm not working, right? I need to be <laughs> where culture is actually happening, where our consumers are. And so I think as you continue to get older, it's just a natural progression of, of humans. Uh, you know, you have to continue to remember that you don't represent the youth voice anymore. Like you're not no longer the, the young executive that is seeing, you know, that's at the bleeding edge every single minute that you just live at the bleeding edge, right? Uh, so you have to make sure that you create space for, you know, younger leaders to find a place to be able to make sure that they're pushing the ideas of the organization forward. And in more respects, you are no longer the idea generator as much as you are, you know, the shaper of pathways for good ideas to make it through. And that's, I think, is a transition that you forget that you have to do, especially when you've tried to be kind of the change agent, you know, if you can say so. And Triller has actually cultivated some of the talent on the platform to help lead its business, right? If I'm not mistaken. And the, so the, yeah, Josh Richards is our chief strategy officer. So that, that's right, right. This one, of the, one of the biggest influencers. And that's, that's a, look, not only that, I mean, when you look, we're such a collaborative unit, you know, uh, for a company that's as big as we are, you know, the fact that every single, we still, we, we, we talk, I don't know, almost five days a week as a total organization. Uh, and that's a rare thing. And, and numbers of those meetings, we let outsiders in and they help shape how we're thinking, or we have, you know, all of our major influences, you know, our influences are a part of our community. They're not just, they're part of our business, you know? So they actually share how we should be shaping the platform. Actually, we should be thinking differently about the platform. There are part of our secret weapon is that we bring the artists and the influencers into the organization. They're part, you know? And, and they help shape who we are and the tool sets and, you know, and the fact that we do that collectively as an entire organization, we all hear from both our consumers and our, our power, you know, our, our users that are our creators. It's important. Ultimately, if you think about over the course of your career, Bon, and, um, uh, you know, oftentimes brands want to lean into innovation uh, but they kind of struggle with measurement. They struggle with a lack of data around yet to be proven formats or channels or, or, or media. Um, what are you looking at now in terms of like, how are the KPIs, how, what data are you looking at to help uh, uh, you think about innovation going forward? I mean, you know, you're looking at all the regular KPIs and you got to create a platform that delivers for that. But you got to look at like, you know, you have to have a better sense of cultural relevance, right? So how do you create stuff that's relevant to culture? How do you create stuff that people truly, truly, truly want to be a part of? And that to me is a much bigger determinant of what's going to be successful um, from an, from an innovation standpoint, but in general, man, like, you know, that's the, 
that's that's just that's just what people struggle with to your point is sometimes you just know that this is the right thing and sometimes you just gotta kind of go with that and you know it's the same thing about what they said you know if i asked you if you wanted a car you just say no i wanted a faster horse and at some point in time it's those people who are able to make that mental leap those organizations that are able to make that mental leap because what we forget is that we're so we're so look we scrutinize so many things in businesses right so many things we scrutinize but the reality is is so many things fail so many things fail and we forget that and when we see something there's certain like oh my god oh facebook no no we'd rather create a new lemon meringue cookie well think about the walls of these organizations are littered with failures products that just flat out failed and so if you're going to try it on your core business and you're willing to innovate on your core business, right? <laughs> when it's very clear that consumers have moved to a different platform, why wouldn't you innovate on your communications? You know, I quit Mondelez because what I saw, I wanted to invest in messaging technology. Everybody told me, I wrote the book, text me, 646-759-1837. I said, messaging is gonna be the biggest platform that we're gonna have. It is where the most amount of human attention is today and it is the most untapped opportunity we have. People were like, no, 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 no. Look at the biggest, fastest growing right now uh, startup equity investment is in messaging right now. You saw Attentive just announced 2.2 billion, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, like, you know, and so it was more for me is the consumer tends not to, there, there's, tends not to be wrong, right? <laughs> and so hence the consumer is always right. Uh, but no, I mean, not tends not to be wrong. Sometimes they are. Um, but when you see that's what you got to look for. You have to pattern recognize those seismic consumer shifts. Like people would say, oh my God, how'd you know you should 3D print an Oreo? 3D printing was already big. It's just nobody had done it on a cookie. It wasn't like I was like transforming the world. It was just, I was seeing seismic shifts, like the bread machine we invested in, which is on fire where it takes the average, you know, it's a big machine that sits in retail and every six minutes a fresh loaf of bread comes out and you can smell it, you can see it. 101 lasers manage it. It's just, Robotics and automation were a thing, but what we saw was that you could cut production and distribution down and you could move the average profitability from 10 cents on a loaf of bread to two dollars or two fifty. Uh transformational. But that you know, these aren't like it's it's and by the way, some of my best friends run bread companies and they were some of the first portal calls and they were like, No, not gonna be big. Okay. <laughs> I mean we know that automation is, you know, and we even more than that, it wasn't even automation because that's the simple part of it. What it was, was it was edge production, being able to create things at the edge, right at the point of consumer purchase like that. And that's what we were looking at when I did the first 3D printed Oreo was like, could we create a product at the edge, right where consumers were? And if you can do that, look, you, we, there's less churn in terms of you're not creating as much as you, you know, that you have to ship and try to calculate and guesstimate what production and yield is going to be. And of course, you know, so those are the things that like, I think deep pattern recognition is much more important than, uh, than traditional KPIs are. One of the ideas you've espoused in the past that I've loved that kind of encapsulates a lot of that thinking. It's the notion of the hack economy as right. you've described it in the past. And I feel like you just described part of your process for hacking, which is, 
synthesizing one way, uh, like a, a way of thinking from one field and applying it to another. Is that fair to say that that's part of your process? Yeah, I do that a lot. Uh, you know, I think there's a couple of things I do that. I think I do high throughput. So I love speaking on stage, not just because I enjoy, you know, inspiring people, but I love to come off stage and I love there to be a line because then I get to talk to, you know, a hundred people. Mm -hmm. And if you've ever seen me, people, so I stand there until the last person, right? And I'll go down and all I hear is idea after idea after idea. So I'm doing two things. One, there's pattern recognition that's beginning because if I start to hear the same idea in some form or fashion, I'm saying, okay, there's something that's bubbling up in the surface here. But the other thing is I'm just hearing a ton of stuff. It's just high throughput. So, you know, I try to just bombard myself with different thoughts. Like, tell me how I should think different. Um, thanks for that, Bonin. Um, Before we wrap up, we usually like to ask our guests to leave us with a prediction. Um, and I want to ask you maybe about a, a few different things and get your view of the future, if you will, Bonin. Um First, from the perspective of a consumer, um, one of the things that you've really reinvented over time is the, the thought around media mix, right? So from the perspective of a consumer, what's the allocation of their time by platform? So I, I still firmly believe that text messaging in the US and WhatsApp in the rest of the world is where people spend the most amount of time. It's their personal feed if you want to boil it down. It's the place where they've curated and they care about the most and they respond to and they read and, you know, it's getting cluttered and it will continue that journey, but that is where you're going to find consumers the most point blank. That's it. There's nothing bigger than that. Um, the next piece is what you're seeing from Triller is consumable short form video that operates like things that you're used to, which is video, but is encapsulating a concept and an idea in a very short period of time. It's almost like we took what commercials had to do and we actually turned the commercial into the content. Like it literally is the main content, right? And, and then the ads got even shorter, but it is the, the main content. And I think it's shown to be a huge, huge driver of just consumer attention. I was going to ask, ultimately, you didn't mention television, right? You didn't mention streaming television or not yet. Um, yeah, but a lot of the focus of this podcast is on the future of television. What do you feel about what the future of long form storytelling, long form video looks like? I think that, um, I think that binge watching is the new long form. And I think what we've done is we've created a beginning and an end that happens so many more times that people want to see what's coming next, but they also get the accomplishment of finishing. And so it's a weird psychological where I'm looking, I go, okay, there's 15 episodes. I want to finish 15, but I would never sit down and watch a 15 hour movie. I would never be like, oh, it's a 15 hour movie. Let me watch it because it doesn't have natural beginnings and ends that give me accomplishment and serotonin of finishing something. And so I think that long form is going to be encapsulations of short forms. I look at the episode, uh, the docuseries we're doing for Tyson and it's 15 short form episodes. It's amazing watching it one after the other, because you just, you want, okay, you want to see what that next storyline is. 
you know, you want to see it. But at, at the end of the day, you just watched, you know, an hour and a half doc on somebody. Right. And I was thinking about it today. I play a ton of, or not today, last night. Uh, yeah, I guess Sunday. Uh, I, I, I play a lot of video games, right. On my phone and I play them so much on airplanes. I haven't been on airplanes in forever. And I still find myself playing them less because I have less like just kill time, but still it's like a, and what I realized was that like this one game and look, I'm, I, 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 I do two things. One is it kills time for me, but two, what I love about it is that uh, I'm also learning because the psychological behavioral user experience that are integrated into games today is so sophisticated, dude. It's like one minute left for the pink sword. I'm like, well, I know you can have a pink sword for longer than a minute. I know that you get you, but they've used such great psychological cues and they've really learned how to progress a person through the constant purchase funnel that is these games today, right? And I'm the kind of guy that, you know, I, 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 I'm just, I'm like, yeah, give me every power up possible so I can just play the game and enjoy it. But what I realized was that I don't actually enjoy it. I, I like it, it kills time, but I don't, because they never end. There is literally no ending. I never have a feeling like I, I have, you know, the Nintendo I'm looking at it, the Nintendo, uh, not six, is it 64, whatever it was. No, no, the original Nintendo um, simulator. And I, I just think about even Zelda, which took forever, there was an end. Like video games used to have an end and you had a sense of accomplishment. Now I don't know what I've accomplished other than I'm at like this one game, I have, I have like 3,554 boards that I've beaten. When will it end? Like, where, where is the where's the payoff? Like, even Ninja Gaiden, I remember when you beat it and you would stand on top of the mountain and the music or Mario, like, where is that? That doesn't exist anymore. And I feel like I said that, you know, yesterday, I was like, I feel like that's missing. Like, that's for as great as kind of, and that's what I think is so, you ask, you know, what's the future of long form? I actually think it's going to get longer, but I think it's going to be those compilations of short form because there's something beautiful in having an accomplishment moment. Well said. That's a fascinating insight about the future of television and truly unique. Um, so I'm going to leave it at that, Bonin. Thank you so much for joining us on the Spotless Podcast. This has been a ton of fun. Uh, my pleasure, Michael. My pleasure. Anytime, man. Thank you for listening to Spotless. Be sure to subscribe and come back soon for another conversation about the future of television. For more information, you can connect with us anytime at spotless at triplelift.com.